Well, good morning again to you all. If we haven't met um, yet, my name is Charles Johnson, and I would just love to meet you. So please come up and say hi to me. If you have any questions, everybody else who goes here, they are also your hosts. And uh, feel free to just get to know somebody um, and ask any questions that you like. Nothing is off limits. Um, uh, it's just a joy to be with you. I I'm really excited about this latest uh, sermon series that we're getting started in. By now, many of you know that we are starting to study the book of Ruth, and we'll be in the next four chapters over the next four weeks, taking on one at a time uh, as we study the story of Luke. And I'm really excited about this one for all kinds of reasons, but, uh, but here's just one. So some of you uh, have been to a service where, in our denomination, the way that we ordain pastors for uh, for pastoral ministry, you might know that during that time, a lot of pastors are talking during that. I mean, there's just a lot of talking going on. <laughs> there's charges and there's a, there's a homily and uh, it can get kind of long-winded. But I remember um, distinctly in my own ordination service, something one of my former pastors said to me during that time. He said something really important. He said, don't expect for your pastoral ministry to exist on a kind of a constant upward trajectory. He said nobody would look at the life of Paul, uh, broken and tired and sick and in, in and out of prison and certainly in prison by the end of his life and think that's the kind of ministry trajectory that I'm going to aspire to. He said even embrace the ups and downs of ministry as they come to you. And he says, I think that what you'll find is that you will witness some of the clearest evidences of God working around you in the most desperate of circumstances. And that's what we get a picture of in Ruth. That, that God moves toward his people with deep love for them, even in, when circumstances seem most difficult. And that's certainly, we see the seeds of that in Ruth chapter 1. Let's look together. I'm going to read the whole chapter, uh, all 23 verses. So follow along with me, if you will. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they left, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we are uh, before you now. And we've just heard your word spoken to us. I pray that you would help us to hear from you, that you might speak. Uh, that you might speak into our longings, speak into our disappointments. That you might speak into our joys. And help us to understand a little more about who you are and what you intend for your people, what you intend for us. Would you help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with these words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So four years ago, uh, there was a really interesting study done by some researchers at MIT. Uh, and what they were trying to do was explain why decision-making when you're under stress could be so difficult. And uh, it was pretty interesting. What they did was they created two mazes for mice. Mazes for, I always thought those were kind of fun. But what he had were two mazes. One was what we would call a low-risk, low-reward maze. It wasn't a hard maze, and uh, it was well-lit. And at the end of the maze, you would have diluted chocolate milk. And then you had a high-risk, high-reward maze, which was a lot harder. And uh, it had harsh lighting. And, but at the end, it had very concentrated chocolate milk. It turns out that mice love chocolate milk. And uh, so what they would do is they had two groups of mice. You had a control group that uh, kind of lived a normal life. And this other group, they stressed out, okay? They stressed out the mice. They submitted them to daily stress. What that looked like, 
I don't know. And uh, I don't know how you stress out a mice, but that's what they did. And what they found was really interesting. They found that the stressed out mice were much more likely to choose the high-risk, high-reward maze than, the, uh, than the, the normal mice. What they, what they saw was that they were much more likely, under stress, to chase what they value the most, despite whatever cost there might, there might be. And that's often the case, is that during times of great stress, the choices that we make often reveal the values that we have. And that's the connection they were making, is that the way stress can work on our neurology is that it causes us to almost act more impulsively and chase the things that we value the most, no matter what the cost might be. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because in this first chapter, I see, I mean, there's a lot here. We can't hope to cover it all. But at the very least, what I see are three choices being made under great stress, like just under great distress. And behind each of the choices that are made, you see the values of the person making them. And so I'm going to take each one on one at a time. The first thing you see is you see a choice to go. That's a limelech. He makes a choice to go. And then you're going to see a choice to return. That's Naomi. She makes this choice to return. And then we're going to see a choice to cling. And that was Ruth's choice that she made to cling. Go each one at a time. So first, the choice to go. The the way I kind of want to unpack this is to talk about what he was experiencing, uh, what he was seeking, and what he found. So what was he experiencing? you get a sense for the world that Elimelech and his family were living in right in the very first verse. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now that's an ominous line. That's kind of like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You can read about the, the judges in the book of Judges right just prior to this one. And, and what you'll find is that it was a time of deep moral, spiritual, and social decay for God's people. That they were almost caught up, or they were, they were caught up in these cycles of rebellion against God and punishment and restoration and then rebellion, rebellion again. And, and it was this cycle that they never really broke out of. The, the end of Judges ends with, with uh, uh, this ominous, also ominous line that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now that's a picture of chaos, Right? For everyone to be moving in favor of their own self-interest. That was what Elimelech and his family were living in, was a society that was defined by chaos. Everybody just doing what they thought was best for them. And then add on top of that, they were also experiencing a famine. A famine is a huge deal. People often moved around just trying to chase food. And so they were experiencing this famine, and that, that was what he was experiencing, was, was great social disorder in a world that doesn't make sense and lack of provision. And so what was he seeking? Well, he was probably seeking some of the just more normal things that you and I are seeking all the time. He was probably just looking for a life for his family. He was looking to go to a place where there was food. And so he made the, the hard choice, and that's what I think it was, was a really hard choice to uproot his family and take them to Moab. That's really risky. Moab was one of Israel's traditional enemies. There are all kinds of stories prior to this one where Israel and Moab aren't mixing well. 
And so it was this risky thing to, to go from his country and from his kin to a place where he is known to go to a place where he is not known. It kind of reminds me of the story of the grapes of wrath. That's the story that, as I studied this passage, that kept coming back to me. If you've not read it, it's, uh, it was really controversial in its time. But John Steinbeck write, wrote this uh, novel that talks about the Jode family during the Great Depression era. They were itinerant farmers in Oklahoma. And, uh, and that was a time during the Dust Bowl. That was a famine. And, uh, and what did they do? They, they caught a flyer that, that, uh, that, that told them, hey, if you go to California, you might find steady work. And a better, at a better paying job, a better life, picking, or, picking peaches on an orchard in California. And so they chased that dream. They left behind a place where they, they thought they had nothing, and they chased a dream based on what they read on a piece of paper. And it was incredibly risky. Much of the story is just about how risky that was. And that's, that's all I'm trying to get you to see here is that when Elimelech uproots his family and goes to Moab, Moab he is risking something because of something that he values. And that's just simply a, a life for, for him and his people. Well, what did he find? Well, it looks like he did find a life in some ways. Like it says they sojourned there and then they remained there. They were there about 10 years is what it said. It seemed like they did kind of construct something there. But if Ruth is teaching us something, it is at least teaching us this, that there is nowhere that we can go where we can really escape the reality of living as fallen people in a fallen world because death, death comes soon. Elimelech dies. That's a tragedy. And then their two sons die. Malon and Chilion die. And what we're left with, what we're left with is, uh, is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law left to fend alone for themselves. This is, a, this, is a, this is a really difficult story of death and survival. Because in the ancient Near East, Naomi's survival is totally bound up on, on, the, on a man's ability to, to care for her. And so there's just this profound sense of loss there. Listen, one of the things that this is telling us is that escape isn't really possible for us. And I think that's important because escape is really tantalizing to us as well. I've got a number of friends that um, are travel agents, and uh, I think, why do I have so many friends that are travel agents? Like I, <laughs> but I, I think that they, um, I think their marketing strategy is probably a lot more complicated than, uh, than it looks, but what do they do? They post these pictures of these beautiful, exotic places, and they hit you with some kind of tantalizing uh, line, like, uh, don't you want to go here? Don't you want to escape your life and go to some place that's undefiled by, uh, by all the circumstances that you might be wrestling with right now. That, I mean, and that's an effective strategy. Uh, you'll see an invitation to escape in so many different places in life. That's, um, that's what's behind Southwest Airlines. Want to get away? And look, I'm not against vacation. I'm not against resorts or like, if you can get away, that's great. I'm all for it. But one of the things that we have to understand is that escape is something that never works. To truly escape is something that never works because we can never escape 
the reality of a fallen world that sits under a curse. And more than that, we can't even escape our own selves. That everywhere we go, we are bringing ourselves with us all the time. We're bringing ourselves with our disordered affections, like we want things that aren't good for us. We, we, uh, we don't want things that are good for us. I can tell you that in my life, I have probably said the most regrettable things to people that I love while on vacation. Like, it just doesn't work. And that's one of the things that we see here. But, what, but then what we see, in, in the midst of that mess that's been created, that great difficulty, is that we see God even moving on Naomi's behalf in ways that she might not even understand. And so it's in that she makes this choice to return. And I've already mentioned she's, she's experiencing profound grief, the kind of grief I, I can't presume to understand. Some of you might be able to, though. And she's experiencing loss, like there's no pro- prospects of a life. The very thing that they were chasing when they went there, she, she's lost. And in fact, you see her inability, her, um, re- we see her realization of her current state and her encouragement to her daughters-in-law to, hey, I have nothing left for you. I love you, but I can't get, I have nothing to provide for you. You should go back to be with your family. And I think this too must have been a hard choice for Naomi to, to return home. Because it's hard to go home empty-handed, isn't it? Like usually... When we return home, we want to have something to show for the, the way we spent our time when we're away. I think this must have been really humbling for her. And how would she be received by the people that she left? Remember, they were experiencing a famine, and they left when it got hard. And now she's going to come back because she hears that God is now giving them bread. How, is, how, how would she be received by the people there? I think this was a really hard choice For Naomi, this had to be a really low moment for her, I would think. Larry Crabb says this. He's talking about, if you haven't read Shattered Dreams, I would encourage it to you. But he talks about what it looks like for us to live in faith when our lives don't um, come to uh, look the way that we had imagined for ourselves, which is all of our stories in some way. Uh, And it's certainly uh, Naomi's story. But he says this, he says, in that moment when our dreams are shattered, we, will, we have two options. We will either sink into despair or we will hope in God and wait as faith becomes a firmer foundation and, in, and the godly enjoy a way of life. And, and to be honest, I don't necessarily know exactly where Naomi falls on that scale. Like, is she, is she hopeful for when she goes home? Is she... Just moving out of despair, I think it's probably both. But while Naomi is going home, she, she thinks she's going home with nothing. But what she doesn't know is that she is about to return home with something far more valuable than she ever would have imagined for herself. That, that God's gift to her in, in Ruth is far more valuable than anything she would have constructed for herself. And this is where we see the, 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 the almost beatific vision that's in front of us as Ruth makes this choice to cling. And I'm getting that from, uh, from verse 14 here. Look at it. It says, Orpah kissed her mother goodbye, 
But Ruth clung to her. Now, this doesn't mean that Ruth is clingy, okay? She's not a high-maintenance friend. What it means is that Ruth was completely committed and devoted and loyal to Naomi's good. In fact, the same, the same Hebrew word to cling is the one that's used in Genesis 2 to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve when they got married. And in fact, that's something, that's what we get a picture of as we look at these beautiful words that Ruth articulates her commitment to Naomi in just beautiful, you've probably, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably come across these words. You might have seen them cross-stitched somewhere, I don't know. If you're an underliner, you've probably underlined these words because it's a beautiful picture of devotion. And what does she say? Let me read them to you again. This is verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For, for where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What's Ruth doing? She's taking a vow. She's, t- she's committing herself, body and soul, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Listen, there is a reason that weddings can be so beautiful, because the vows that, uh, that they are making to each other can be a glimpse of the transcendent commitment, uh, can be this transcendent glimpse of the commitment that God makes to his people. You know, the image that God uses most often to describe what Jesus's commitment to his bride, the church, looks like is one of marriage. And when we see commitments like this one, it is pointing to something important that we should know. And, the, and when, we, when we read these words, the, this is the ultimate commitment. It is an astonishing act of self-sacrifice that Ruth would lay down her life to serve the interests of, interest of Naomi. And the most obvious question is, why? Why would she do this? Orpah didn't make the same choice. In fact, in this story, it almost seems like Orpah is the one who is um, logical here. She didn't make that choice, and we certainly don't fault her for it. The only reason that we can even imagine for why Ruth would do this is because she is burdened by love for Naomi. And this is a picture of deep, committed, unflinching, and unreserved love that Ruth is giving to Naomi. And what's interesting to me is that these words, this beautiful speech, didn't soften Naomi at all, did it? What what did the next verse say? It says, when she heard that she wouldn't be deterred, that Naomi simply stopped talking to Ruth. Like, it, like this display of wonderful, deep love didn't seem to soften Naomi's heart at all. And according to Naomi, Naomi's own words about herself, she was very bitter. She said, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And such is the way. For us who can only see our pain, it's hard for us to see the good things that God might be working in us. 
But even though Naomi was coming home bitter, she wasn't coming home empty. And the hardness of her heart, we will see, doesn't stand a chance against this kind of deep love that's being given to her. But listen, Ruth is not the answer that Naomi needs. It's an answer. And it's goodness that God is working into Naomi's heart through Ruth. Ruth's risky commitment reminds us of another risky commitment that was made on our behalf. That just as Naomi needs Jesus in the most difficult times, so do you and I. Listen, who left his father's house to come and live with us, uh, even to the point of his own death? Who, uh, against whom did the Almighty's hand go out in bitter judgment? Uh, Jesus is the answer that Naomi needs, and Jesus is the answer that you and I need. He left the glories of heaven in order to say to us, where you will go, I will go. And he echoes the refrain of God throughout the Old Testament that you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Listen, in his grace, Jesus clings to you and unites us with his spirit. And so I'd like to end our time together by just asking where you are in your story with all of this. There's been a lot of loss lately, right? I mean, just yesterday, our country remembered in various ways a time of profound loss. I think it's going to be years before we're able to even begin to count the loss of what we've experienced over the past year and a half in this pandemic. It's been a time of great loss. And those are just a couple of big examples, but each one of us are wrestling with loss in some ways that, that are bearing heavy on, on us. It'd be very easy to be bitter. It would even be understandable to be bitter, to be hard of heart, to be resistant, to being able to understand the ways that God is attending to us, even in the most difficult of circumstances. But let me ask you, where, where are you with all this? And what are people seeing? Do people see in you bitterness? Or are they seeing the tender evidence of God's grace and love in your life? Because the more we will come to understand the depths of our need of grace and the answer of Jesus giving us what we most deeply need, the softer people that we will be. There's a book whose story is, the story is so profound, I can't even sum it up. But if you're not familiar with the woman, Corey Ten Boom, you should be, okay? She's a, uh, she was a, a Dutch Christian who, uh, during World War II, was caring for Jews during, you know, Nazi oppression. They were hiding them, her with her family, were hiding them in her home. And eventually she went to a concentration camp, Ravensbrück, in northern Germany, where she was for a little while. And, uh, and they think it was, might have been a clerical error that had her, um, that had her leave before the end of the, the war. But uh, uh, she spent the rest of her days uh, ministering the gospel of Jesus throughout war-torn Europe during a time when hunger was a, was a real issue. And uh, so she rebuilt. She, she went back home. She rebuilt. And she had a lot of opportunity to write books like this one and, and, uh, and preach in different churches and, um, and minister the gospel of, of grace, which was which was amazing, but she tells the story at the end of this book, this is a hiding place, that is just stunning. 
She said, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. And he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. And even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? And Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. It's an unnatural love, isn't it? It's an unnatural love that softens. And that's what we see. In in Ruth, we see an unnatural love that points us to an unnatural love. And that's my prayer for you too. That we would understand the unnatural love of Christ, that as we share in our sufferings, that as we share in the joys that Jesus invites us into, as we stand together, the unworthy objects of his unnatural and yet somehow steadfast love. Let me pray. Jesus, you have been so generous to us, more so than we deserve. Uh, Would you help us to believe your love, to trust it, to find ourselves in it, to desire it, to want nothing more than to be the objects of your love? Would you give us a deep sense of satisfaction that we are yours? I pray these things, thanking you for the grace that you bring, in, bring to us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.